This is Women Authors of Achievement Podcast, episode 30, with guest Shruti Ramaya. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Suvorova, and welcome to today's episode. Shruti Ramaya is interaction designer and design researcher. As the head of design at Zalando, she leads a team called The Studio that focuses on making the near future tangible through design. Prior to Zalando, Shruti led user research and product design at N26, worked in strategic design consulting with Ideo, and did UX design for Nokia. In this episode, you will learn how to run a proper design research, how to form collaborative work around product design, and how to build products that appeal to a wide range of customers. Don't want to miss out on the next episode release? Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Welcome to the studio, Shruti. So good to finally have a design researcher on the podcast and get into nitty-gritty of design practices and user research. Thank you so much for having me. I know that you have extensive background in design and you tapped into a number of things, starting with graphic design, photography, design research and interaction design. Probably the list goes on. So why design is your calling all the way from the start of your career? So. It's interesting, but I always knew as a kid all the things I didn't want to do. <laughs> I always knew I didn't want to be an engineer. I didn't want to be a doctor. And it was quite a struggle, actually, to figure out what it is that I did want to do. And eventually I realized I needed something that was a mix of a couple of my passions. So I was always really curious about the sciences and that kind of approach to things, but wanted somewhere where I could really express my creativity as well. In fact, as a kid, I had a little book of inventions that I wouldn't show anyone anymore. But always wanting to create was a, a big part of my what I enjoyed. So it was a bit of a search, but eventually I found design. And in design, I really see this marriage of creativity and science and bringing both those threads together. And, and that's, what's, that's what brought me to it. And that's what keeps me with it, because... It's not art. It's not creating for the act of creation. You, there's a purpose. There's a, some, someone you're serving through your design. And that really motivates me. And it's about problem solving. And um, problem solving is always really creative. It's about thinking laterally and exploring. And whatever type of design you're doing, whether it's graphic design or product design, interaction design, that's at the heart of it. And as I've moved through those different types of work um, that's been kind of consistent and stayed with me. And I know that you were interaction designer and later you moved into design research. Why did this transition happen? So actually, uh, I would say the design research was always there. Just at the start of my career, nobody knew what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> at least within the environments I was in, this discipline of design research had not been established. So people didn't have a name for it. They didn't have a role for it. Um, in fact, my, my, my bachelor's thesis was essentially a design research project that my advisors couldn't figure out where to place. So first, is this an art project? Is this, a, is this design even or not? So there was always this red thread, but it took a little while before I could find a do or a space where the discipline was understood and that it was given like a whole role assigned to it. 
Even at IDEO, I kind of stepped between the two worlds. I joined IDEO as an interaction designer. And as I was doing my work, my, my peers were like, actually, you're really good at this research stuff. Do you want to think about becoming a, a design researcher? And for a long time, I sort of played both, both roles and eventually decided that my love was in design research. But I still kind of want to hold on to both sides. So I kind of uh, always describe myself as a mix of the two. Mm -hmm. uh, discipline. So could you explain what is design and maybe also user research? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that falls into this. Mm -hmm. And how do you marry basically design and research together? Yes. So design research, user research, they're different terms, but essentially describe the same discipline. It comes from what would have been called HCI or human computer interaction uh, in more academic circles. And at the end of the day, I think user researchers come from more diverse backgrounds often. So they might come from psychology, from sociology, from academic work. And design researchers tend to come from a mix of design and with a leaning towards research. But at the end of the day, I think it's one discipline. It's, it's all people working within the design process, applying research, applying methods to understand people. It's all part of one process. It's all part of the process of creating great products and services for people that work well for them. So a big part of that is trying to understand the people that you're going to serve. And the best way to do that is to gain that inspiration, that information knowledge from them. And the design researcher, user researcher's role is to be the expert within the domain of like how to extract this inspiration, this information from people. Often designers will do that too, but it is a specialized skill as well. So we, it's important to acknowledge that uh, it's not just about sitting down and talking to someone. There are methods, there are standards, there are practices that need to be adhered to. When it comes to the relationship between the two, in a way, what we're trying to do is translate. So we what we hear from the customers or the users or the people that we're trying to serve, we need to translate that into design. And that's where the design and the research need to really overlap. And my philosophy has always been that researchers should feel free to design and designers should feel free to research while acknowledging each other's expertise. So the more we can overlap those two disciplines and get them to try and talk each other's language, the better the outcomes will be because the interpretation gap is less. So you have less of throwing information over the, the wall and hoping that the person on the other side has understood it. So the more a researcher can try and sketch out a wireframe, the better understood they might be by a designer and the more a designer spends time in interviews, in synthesis, and observes how a researcher takes, you know, lots of different threads of comments and turns them into an insight, the better they understand also what customers need. I think this is a little bit on collaborative work, which we're going to touch more later on. I know that you were leading user research and product design at N26. What were some research methods and techniques that you and your team applied? Yeah, so we use a real variety of methods because of you have to cover a real breadth of research needs. Um, the general terminology is you start out when you're at the very beginning of the of the process, where which by which I mean you're trying to define something, you're trying to bring something to the world. Initially, you're trying to understand what is the problem even? Does it even exist? What are the main needs people have? 
what are the beliefs they have around it. And that's considered exploratory or discovery research. And there you use really open-ended methods. It's the part that's super inspired by sociology. So design researchers, user researchers are basically borrowers. We take from all the social sciences to be inspired. And that's where you use techniques like contextual inquiry, so spending time in the context of the person and learning about their situation, doing more observation rather than questioning. So what are they doing rather than asking them what they do, because people are really bad at telling you what they do. Or even, you know, spending time uh, with diary studies or longitudinal studies where you observe people over time if it's something that goes through many steps. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have what many people are familiar with. So usability testing or what's called evaluative research, where you have a thing and you're testing it to see whether it works for people. And so it has a lot of definition already. And you might even give it to someone uh, to try out without any guidance. Or sometimes you might provide a little bit of, you know, uh, handholding to explain, oh, how did you arrive at this place? Oh, where are you going? what's going to happen next? Because the design is not complete. But what I'd like to insert in that I feel doesn't happen enough is I just call it investigative research. So it's somewhere in the middle. Hmm. It's You're not clueless. You have some sense of what the problem is. And you don't have a full design yet, but you're trying to create more definition around the problem and the solution. So that's where I actually think this collaboration between design and research can work really beautifully because the design and the situation can actually be the material for the research. So you don't go and talk really openly and say, I just want to observe you as you do this thing, or I just want to hear your your story about your life. You do take things to show and to prompt the conversation with a, a user or a person, but you're still very open to what the solution can be. So mm -hmm. maybe you take three different options and you show it to the person and ask them, oh, which of these three might work for you and why? And uh, why does one fit better than another? So with investigative research, you allow the user to come to a conclusion and to suggest potentially the final exactly. design. You're involving them in your process. You're the, you're bringing their yeah. input in and almost making them critique your work for you. Can it be frustrating for the designers because they have this idea of amazing design that everything is set in place and then as a design researcher you come to the to them and say like well actually that's not what our, the user wants. Yes, it is it can be. Yeah. And that's well spotted. One of the biggest things you have to learn to go through this kind of process is to, in design school, we say kill your babies. So not to be too attached to what you create. And also um, a big thing you learn is also to always create options, to create variants and not believe that your first answer is the right answer because it probably won't be. So it is frustrating to receive feedback, but another way to think about it is Better to get it wrong faster and earlier than to have it go wrong in the hands of customers once you've released it. There's a very wide spectrum of people using online banking or online shopping today. And how do you make sure that the final product is useful and intuitive to a very diverse group of customers? Because I believe this is a huge challenge. Yes, it is. And definitely not a simple one. So obviously, when you're serving, you know, 45 million customers like we do with Zalando or, you know, 26 countries like we did with um, N26, you have to use a range of techniques, but also adjust your techniques for the different phases in order to get to the right um, input. What's important to remember with design research, user research is you are in a time limited 
situation. So you have to sort of let go of this pursuit of the truth and you have to seek just enough information to make good decisions. You're, you're seeking enough input, enough signals that you can make a decision in a certain situation. You're not trying to, vis-a-vis -vis social sciences, describe the truth about a group of humans or describe the reality of a group of humans. So sort of releasing this, you know, I don't have to have it absolutely 100% right, helps you to let go a little bit of that stress of like, how do we serve so many different types mm -hmm. of people? The other side of that is then using a mix of approaches. So when you're in a very early stage, like we talked about exploratory research, it can be a small group, but you make it a very diverse group. So if you really think about, okay, for this thing that I'm designing, what are the different dimensions along which people might differ? So um, if we take N26, we would consider things like, um, you know, financial status, so how well off or not they are. Are they urban or, or semi-urban rural because access to financial services, physical financial services was a factor as a digital bank, but also things like culture and attitudes towards money. So um, what is your background when it comes to finances? What kinds of services are you accustomed to? For example, what's your relationship with credit or debt? So that really varies across these 26 countries within Europe, we have really diverse opinions on these topics. So we would, for exploratory research, make sure even if we're talking to 10 people, we're gonna get 10 people from really different backgrounds um, so that we hear lots of different voices. But then when you start to get the later stages of the process, then you wanna shift towards um, quantitative methods and ways that you can collect information from a wider scope of people, but then you have a, a clearer frame. You ask clearer questions so that you don't get lost in a lot of noise and a lot of input. So if you're being really open, you have to be with a smaller group so you don't drown in data. But once you start to get the larger groups, you get more focused with your questions and you try to reach as many people as you can with that. Are there any products today or services that you think represent that market standard in terms of their diverse customer reach? <sighs> Any products today that do a really good job of reading a really diverse audience? Because we have to consider, right, that today we have very tech-savvy people, we have not very tech-savvy people, we want everyone to use the online uh, tools that are available. So it's like going from very niche group of people more yeah. into the mass market, and maybe some products yeah. are doing it better than the other. Well, I would argue that all products go on that journey of going from being sort of a niche, strange experience I for a niche so. for a specific audience yeah. or successful mass market products. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the case. Not every product needs to work mm -hmm. for absolutely everyone. But like think about WhatsApp right now. Like the whole world is on WhatsApp and, and is familiar with it and understands it and uses it. It goes across age groups. It goes across um, nationalities um, and is intuitive to a massive audience. But um, partially because it became a necessity, not like a luxury we product. We all still have SMS, but we prefer WhatsApp. So they're doing something better than what we had in place, right? Okay, of course, there was economic incentives because it's cheaper for a lot of people to message with uh, WhatsApp. It speaks to the, you know, the nature of the world today that we have family all over the world and we need to reach them and it's expensive through the networks. But I think on the other hand, um, they've also done a good job of 
um, sensing the signals of what people want and translating it into product services and features. I'm not saying WhatsApp is a great product and an ideal product. They've obviously made a lot of errors recently with their uh, privacy policy and stuff like that. But uh, on the other hand, if you think about it from a pure usability perspective, that's quite amazing that we have a really diverse group of people using that product. When I think about Zalando, when they showed up on the on the scene in in Europe, you know, shopping online for clothing was a strange experience. But now this is such a mainstream experience, and it's all about differentiating your 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 approach to even shopping online. So I think there's a journey for a lot of these products, and people move along with it. I think what's interesting is when do you age out of experiences, and and is that going to continue to be the way that things work? So. My grandmother only learned to use video calling last year um, out of necessity from Corona. Like she, she was forced to, to do that. And so there's definitely groups of people that we leave behind as we go th- through these waves of technology. And I wonder whether we are somehow okay with leaving older people behind with new technologies and they are okay with it too. But will that continue to be the case? Will that Will that group that we leave behind become bigger and bigger if, you know, technology evolves faster and faster? You know, I'm already somehow clueless when it comes to TikTok and Snapchat and like, why do people Uh-oh. do this? So it, I, I have a, I guess it's an open question as to does everything have to work for everyone and how many people will be leave behind for as, as mass experiences evolve? And also like a little bit philosophical question here. Today, everything is set on attention, attention of customers, attention of users. How can we foster respect towards the attention of those customers and also respect towards the boundaries? I think this is a big question. This is a massive question. And I think it's a societal question at the end of the day, because somewhere early on in the creation of the Internet, we decided that we were willing to barter our attention for free services. And now we live in a world where we are very accustomed to receiving things for free that take effort to create and put out into the world. And we have to decide on the one hand, you know, what do we value and what will we pay for? And that, that can be in content creation, but can also be in our privacy and our data. Um, and in my Years of working in design, I've observed that people say one thing and do another. So they often say they really value privacy in their data, but at the end of the day, they trade it for convenience. On the other hand, I think given the mammoth organizations that shape the internet today, they also have a huge responsibility towards how they manage people's information and and that they make it as easy as possible for people to shape their preferences and to to shape their experience. So they really need to make it possible for us to set our boundaries where we are comfortable with them. Make privacy the default. And I don't think that's the case today at all. Um, I think, you know, GDPR has definitely taken some steps forward, but we need to move past sort of like doing just as much as the regulation requires to actually honoring the spirit of the regulation and not just 
you know, now we have these cookie pop-ups that are everywhere that are so frustrating that I think maybe we are permitting more cookies than we did before GDPR, you know? Um, and that's where designers have a role as well. Like we're part of the problem that created these dark patterns of interaction that drives you towards clicking the option that's not the best one for you or making it harder for you to assess your options uh, when you look at that pop-up. So this is a place where we need to stop saying like, oh, I just do what, you know, what I'm asked to do and say, is this, is this, you know, would I want this done to me? Um, but not just, you know, using yourself as a reference because you don't know what the experience of every other um, kind of human out there. So also pushing yourself to think about if I was XYZ minority group, would this serve me as well? It's a complicated question, and I think uh, we're not going to solve the the attention economy today. <laughs> but... Definitely not. Unfortunately, <laughs> I was I was very enthusiastic about solving this, Shruti. <laughs> today, Shruti, you are head of design at Zalando, where you lead a team called the Studio that focuses on making the near future tangible through design. Can you share more about what you are working on at the Studio? Yes. So the studio is um, a little bit outside the uh, the typical um, structures of, of design teams within Zalando. So typically you have teams that work um, in a cross-functional group. So engineers, product managers, user researchers, designers together. The studio is a little outside that process. We are more a team that of different types of designers with different skill sets that focuses on topics that are either cross-cutting so they go across a number of teams or they even go across different business units or they are kind of not addressed yet by anyone. So are, there's like literally no one looking at that particular problem. It's like an experimentation lab. It's a little bit like an experimentation lab, but I, I, I avoid, well, I don't want to suggest in any way that there is an experimentation happening anywhere else because there absolutely is. And, and that's, that's the great thing that... There are teams who focus on innovation and exploration within their specific domains. And then we also have a team, the studio, that can look at the topics that perhaps, you know, are nobody's specific baby right now. And we can give them a home. We can give them the attention that they are due. And with the, the, the approaches of design, so doing the customer research, customer understanding, using sort of prototyping and and sketching and you know all the techniques that we have in our toolbox to make things more real we're able to kind of create a more aligned picture for all those involved of what this opportunity might be what it might entail what it might look like who it might serve um, helping everyone understand okay is this even something for us is this is this something we want to do as an organization if yes you know who's best placed who has the capabilities to do this and helping then the organization set itself up for those opportunities and challenges. And what can happen if a team only invests time in user design testing and not enough of time into the research? Mm. What usually is the result of it? Well, I hope that's not happening, but it's really simple. So how does this come about? You've had an idea or you had a problem you identified, you hypothesized the solution, you built the solution, and now you're testing that solution and iterating it. But what if your fundamental idea of what the problem is was misplaced? 
Or what if it was incomplete? Or what if your hypothesis of how you're going to solve that problem was not quite right? When you only focus on the evaluative research, on the user testing, you might have framed the problem itself wrong or identified, not identified all the possible solutions, for example. So that's the opportunity loss that happens when you um, only focus on user testing, that you might be sort of iterating down a less effective path than other possibilities or other options you had if you'd better understood the problem and the different ways you can solve it. And one of the solutions to this is collaborative work. Collaborative work and also making sure that you are together understanding the problem. So of course, um, you understand as a designer, as a researcher, I'm always like, what's the customer problem? But of course, we also need to understand what's the engineering problem that we need to solve here? What's the engineering opportunity that we have? Or what's the product problem? What's the business problem that we can address together? So it's not just about the user problem, though I think it always comes first, <laughs> and it should, but also understanding the problem from all those perspectives and bringing all those voices together so that, you know, you don't have situations where you're painted into a corner because you didn't take all the factors into consideration early enough. As companies grow bigger, teams tend to grow apart. That's an unfortunate trajectory. How, in your opinion, Shruti, teams can ensure collaboration? And we spoke before the podcast and you told me a number of times how important is collaboration in design process. So I want to know more. <laughs> I think it's... As businesses grow bigger, the number of problems they need to solve increases, you can say. I think there's always a lot of problems to solve. You just have more capacity maybe to focus in on specific problems. And one of the ways that I think we all learn from the agile methodology as well is to make sure that each team has a lot of ownership on their specific problem and is able to influence that and be accountable for that. But what can start to get out of focus is how we're influencing each other. So at the end of the day, we're part of one experience and I'm pushing on like column A, not realizing that behind it, you know, we're creating a reverse pressure on, on another part of the experience. And what I observe also a lot at Zalando as a, as a huge organization with, you know, 160 designers and researchers, 300, 400 product managers, et cetera, et cetera. The numbers of engineers is even more, is that you have to have an, a shared understanding of process and a shared understanding of um, how we approach problems and a language around that. Because that way we can sort of set expectations with one another around where we're at and, uh, and make sure that we are all using this roughly the same ways to solve problems. And on the other hand, there's a lot of communication. So creating visibility and over-communicating around what you're doing, where you're at, you know, where the solution is at, where you feel the impact is going to be. What that can translate into is large meetings. And meetings are much maligned. And, and people are always trying to see how they can take a meeting out of their day. But there does come a stage where, you know, both providing and receiving communication becomes part of the job and becomes really important to doing the job well. And of course, meetings are not the only answer. There's lots of different formats, but whether it's sitting down and reading the internal blog to see what different things have been built and released, watching internal demos um, every week, 
all of these activities around communication that can feel like they're taking you away from the core job at hand. Like, am I not supposed to be like designing and making stuff? They're they're really important to make sure that um, everyone's on the same page and can have at least some level of understanding of how they might influence other parts of the business. Could you maybe give an example if we talk about a specific product that your team is working on, who else is involved? How does the circle of collaboration mm -hmm. looks like? When does the project manager steps in mm -hmm. just to really envision this process? So uh, a big part of especially studio projects, because they are really cutting across different parts of the business, is at the very start of the journey, we say, you know, who are our different stakeholders and who's the core group? Who's like the next circle? Who's the outer circle? Really defining the different roles that our stakeholders have. And then we define very clear cadence of information and interaction with them. So it can be as often as weekly that we would communicate out to our stakeholders and send them either an email update or a in-person discussion. And also then having what is called At, I, this terminology comes a lot from IDEO, but we use it also at uh, Zalando, looking ins, which is at the beginning of a process, you might spend time even just talking to your own colleagues to understand their perspective better. Say like, hey, what's your perspective on this problem? What are you working on that's related to this? What should I know that would help me do this job better if this is the challenge that I'm trying to tackle? So even... You know, we'd spend the time to talk to customers. We should also spend the time to talk to our own colleagues to hear what is relevant about what they're doing. And then every looking in should end with who else should I talk to or what else should I be learning about in order to have a full picture of what we're doing within the organization about this um, topic. So really looking looking in, but then having a really clear cadence of sharing out with your with your stakeholders And really using kind of mix of methods and media, because of course, there's a lot of communication exhaustion as well. So whether that's sometimes sending a little video update or sometimes it's just a bunch of photos or it's written, that's an, that's an alternative to, to switching up like the meeting exhaustion, which I think is, uh, is always good. It's also really good to always ask, do we need this meeting? Are we going to achieve something together? Do we need to talk about something or do I just need to tell you something? Because if it's telling, we can do it in many ways. Shruti, now back to you, because I would like to know what personally excites you the most in all of this process and in your amazing career. It's funny. I feel like I used to be very tightly, like hold really tightly to this title, like design researcher as my identity. And I think with in the last few years, I've sort of, loosened my grip on that and I just see myself as a person who has some of these skill sets you know I I can do design research I understand the design process I can understand interaction design fairly well I hope but a lot of my work these days is about helping other people do this work and guiding them through this process and also helping them grow as individuals as professionals but more and more in the last two years with COVID and, you know, the, the working from home life that we're all experiencing. There's been such a mashup of personal life, professional life, all these experiences that we're going through that I feel even sometimes like a little bit of a coach or a therapist, you know, that like I, I those are this now I'm suddenly realizing those are new skills that I need to 
together. Like I need to learn how to support someone in emotional distress or support someone in a moment of burnout or anxiety. So the way that I see myself as almost as someone who's like a skill gatherer as different things come at me in my life. And uh, I'm very inspired in the moment by just the the challenge of helping other people be successful and helping them find their path. Like when a good day for me is when someone feels like they got good input and they could, you know, really improve their work or improve their design based on what they got from me or from others in our in our peer circle. What does that mean in the long term? I think I'm I'm really not I'm not one who has like a five year plan, <laughs> so I don't know. But I've always had this idea that we will all have to um, pivot our careers. You know, if we're all going to work till we're 80 and probably have to pivot our careers like two, three, four times in that time. And I think I'm starting to reach the point where I need to I need to start visualizing what a pivot for me would be and what inspires me. And I think design will always be a part of that. It's just a question of like how I can translate these skills into a new path. You mentioned inspiration a few times. So where do you derive inspiration? I'm very inspired by things that are tangential. Like I get inspired by history or by science or by listening to podcasts about, you know, physics and how they solve problems there. Like at the end of it, it's problem solving that we do. And by seeing how people solve problems in other domains, uh, I feel inspired to try different approaches in my own work. So I'm less of a visually inspired person and more of a sort of processly inspired person. So I really enjoy seeing how other people do their work in different contexts and trying to say, oh, what can I borrow from that? Or what can I translate from that into my work? Interesting. So you're not necessarily inspired by the final product, but by the process the person gets to that. Yeah. So for for example, I recently was just listening in on a conversation between three very, very talented, very experienced art directors as they were developing kind of a visual direction for a brand. And I was fascinated by how they pull examples and create sort of clusters of examples. So to create a kind of like theme. Um, so it's kind of, you know, the easy way to describe it would be they were creating mood boards, but there was a real artistry to the way they did it. And I was also really impressed by their sort of encyclopedic memory references to pull up, you know, it's kind of like that logo and, and that visual treatment, and they pull it together and say, ah, there's this kind of theme in here. And when I and when I observed that it was um, a prompt to me to think about, oh, what what kinds of sense making could I do if I use this kind of like, theming with images rather than theming with words because as a design researcher often you theme with words you're putting similar thoughts together but what could you do if you used other kinds of references together so yeah a very tangential example of how you can be inspired maybe i will cut this out but <laughs> when i ask you this question what it, if inspires you the process or the final product you know what came to my mind was uh, wood chopping in that final house i thought But it's so cool. You get to like, you know, cut the wood, prep it and then create something out of it. Yeah. And it can be so much more exciting 
physically, but also just like envisioning this yeah. versus the final result, which we're kind of like the wooden house. I mean, we are so used to it. Yeah, but also like <laughs> one of my friends is really into spoon carving, which is a very obtuse hobby to have. But it's basically you take a piece of wood and you have a very small knife and a few tools and you shape a spoon out of it. And uh, he talks about the process and he's on Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that I took away from that is like you have to go with the wood. You can't make the wood do something it doesn't want to do because it has knots where it has it. It has the curves where it has it, you know. So it's almost like revealing the spoon within that piece of wood and, and going with it and trying to create an aesthetic that is also your own. And sometimes we think of digital media as so plastic, like we can do anything with them. But what if we treated them a little bit more like they have their own Physical way of present, being? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they want to be a certain way. Then how would we treat them and how would we create? But obviously, as you can hear, these are very obtuse ideas and... Often my team tells me that um, I use very vague metaphors, but <laughs> no, I, it's exciting. This is the next place where we're meeting is like do-it-yourself masterclass. <laughs> <laughs> Looking into the future and back a little bit to design research, how important do you think will be the role of design researchers in the coming years? I think it's so exciting how acknowledged this discipline is today and I think that's only going to grow because I think we're past the stage where we struggle to demonstrate the value of user research and design research. I think people can see when when you have this expertise it helps to make products better. We're starting to see places like Airbnb that have really massive um, research teams that also have representation on a executive level and where they're helping to shape the overall strategy of the organization. And this is the same journey that design has also been on and is continuing to go on. I wouldn't say that we have sort of culminated that as yet, but the fact that we have chief design officers today shows that we value design as much as other expertise within an organization. And I think um, design research and user research are and should be on a path to similar recognition because they are equal partners. They are creating knowledge that helps shape what the what your company can do and what the opportunities are. And it makes sense to harness that as early as possible and as and on as big questions as possible. And my last question is always about women authors of achievement. So Shruti, who did you have in your mind as your woman role model? I have to admit, it took me a little while, and I feel really sad about that, that it took me a while to be like, who is my woman role model? Because it shouldn't be that way, and it's probably just a bias that we all have. Um, but the person that I want to share with everyone, and I hope you've all heard of her, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, or also called Notorious RBG, who was a Supreme Court justice in the U.S. from 1993 to 2020. She passed away last year, sadly, at the age of 87 or so, I think. I watched a documentary about her where this frail old 80-plus woman was doing push-ups, and I was very impressed. But more than her physical prowess, I'm just really impressed by her commitment over a lifetime to work on this topic of gender equality and women's rights and to sort of have this constancy of commitment and pushing and pushing and pushing and never sort of dialing it down. You know, it feels like she had that as a theme throughout her life. 
But I think another thing that um, was interesting for me was there was a phase in her career where she had to take a step back and sort of become more of a professor, put her family first, put her husband's career first. And then at a later point, it reversed and her husband supported her and and her career ambitions. And that was a real like interesting spark as to what's the long arc of our lives? You know, what's the long arc of our commitment or contribution that we're going to make. And I think we're often so focused on now, 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 what am I doing today? Am I doing enough? Um, and it's a it's a good reminder for me to like, go a bit slower and a bit more patient with myself and what am I going to contribute and just have some constancy in my commitment and hope that I can have a fraction of the impact that this woman had on the world. Wow. Ooh, <laughs> that's a true highlight, I think, of the episode today, Shruti. Thank you so much for sharing so many insights, being so personal, honest on this episode, inspiring. And I have learned so many things about design research and how to work collaboratively and why circle of feedback is also very important. And there are certain layers to it. I think this is excellent. Thank you so much for coming and I'm wishing you a wonderful day. Thank you so much, Daria. All the very best with this podcast. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.